Welcome to Temperature Check, a podcast from Fix. Fix is Grist's Solutions Lab. I'm Jess Stahl, editor for creative storytelling at Fix. And this season of Temperature Check, we're doing something a little different. We're turning over the reins to climate and justice leaders to talk about mentorship. For each episode, we asked one change maker to tell us who inspires them, who supports them, and then we brought them together. There is like a blueprint for how things could be, right? Like that's what our ancestors did. And they dreamed about us. I'm about building legacy. You know, like I look towards people who have gone before me. Oh my God, I'm the auntie now. I, like, it was a moment of realization. <laughs> I guess that's what it comes down to. It's just like, you are part of my community and like, I am part of your community. Absolutely. Our first conversation of the series is with Josue Rivas and Shutezkat. Josue is an indigenous photographer working at the intersection of art, visual storytelling, and social justice. He's also one of our 2020 Grist 50 Fixers and the creative director and co-founder of Indihena, a storytelling ecosystem that fosters creativity as a vehicle for collective healing. Josue chose to speak with his friend, mentee, and Indihena co-founder, Shutezkat. Shutezkat is a musician and environmental justice activist. Josue and Shutezkat are here to talk about how their past collaborations and future work are creating space for their communities. And now I'll hand it over to them. Josue is, is the GOAT, artist, storyteller extraordinaire. Chutesca, to me, he's a really important person on our planet and also an amazing creative. A visual storyteller that channels things beyond the visual plane. People in the environmentalism, they were like, yeah, this kid is the next big thing. Josue Rivas, La Cabrita, Young Torta, aka Big Bro, like mentor for sure. He's El, el Primo. My name is Josue Rivas. Uh, I'm an indigenous futurist and a creative director and co-founder of Indigena. Good, good intro, bro. That's tight. It's concise. I like it. My name is Tezcat. Um, I'm Mexica, Xochimilca, my pop side, mixed European on my mom's side, artist, storyteller, um, deeply passionate about our peoples, our communities, indigenous sovereignty, indigenous storytelling and voices, and the power of shaping and shifting culture and elevating our communities through art. When I first met you in, in person, it was at a concert, and I remember your mom coming up to me and be like, hey, you know, can you make some photos of my kids? <laughs> and yeah, I just photographed you, and I've been photographing you since then. That's crazy. Our very first real photo session was in Chicago. Remember how you so came cold. out? He ma- he made me get in the lake. You gotta get in the lake, bro. <laughs> but it's the Tachi though. That was one of the first photo sessions we did, preparing for the first tour that I ever did too. You're like, yo, can you make like a cool graphic out of this, like a cool poster? A tour poster. And we're just like trying to figure <laughs> out like you in the water. It was fire. So describe a little bit of like our relationship. Like, well, how would you describe our relationship? It's uh, it's funny. I think it's emerging, which is cool because we've been building together, as you said, for so long since I was like 16, 17. Yeah. I think there's two elements to it, right? It's like one of which is the creative. How do we tell stuff that is visually captivating and beautiful and like catches people's attention and 
And at the same time, how do we do stuff that is really grounded and meaningful? You know, we are always challenging ourselves and pushing ourselves to ensure that we're honoring and working with people in the best way. So I think we really push each other in different projects, working with different corporations and brands too, and like doing some of this storytelling through some of these brand lenses. Like it's a very challenging space to enter. And so we're always kind of like keeping each other in check and like balancing each other out too, because we're both hella visionaries. Like we're always looking at like, what is possible? What can we create? What can we build and do in the world? And so sometimes it's like, okay, cool. Those ideas are fire. How do we ground it? How do we make it real? How do we do it in a way that takes into account the stakeholders, the community, the people whose land we're on, the people who are inviting onto set to help create this bigger picture? We've grown so much, bro. Like even just this latest photo session we did for this next album, 1111, like that compared to the first thing we did in Chicago or when we walked around the Bay Area, just like looking for random spots where we could take some Polaroids and the light is hitting just right. Like, and it's, it's very playful. We're always looking for, you know, the best spots to go eat after a long day on set. The best juice in LA, shout out Wild Living Foods, shout out Rich and Liz, uh, Misley out there. Yeah, I think our relationship is pretty much based on food, like which kind of vegan food we're going to look for after. <laughs> totally. Totally. It's, it's a pillar. <laughs> to me, you know, it's really interesting because when people talk about like mentoring each other, especially when I think about you, it's like you could be an elder or you can be an old person. And it doesn't matter what age you are. I remember when you were so much younger, you would just be like, yo, like, you know, you got to recycle that stuff, man. Mm. Or like, hey, you got to put the compost here. And I would just be like, oh, you're right. <laughs> and then and then it was like, you were mentoring me. Mm. And even now, we continually to like learn from each other. So I think that it's like a circular relationship. You know, it's almost like, how do you, how do you not just look at your relationships in one dimension? You know, how can you have meaningful relationships that are multidimensional and that can have longevity too. Mm-hmm. You know, like I want one day I want to see like your kids grow up, you know, with my kids and like have have relationship and have community. And I guess that's what it comes down to. It's just like you are part of my community and like I am part of your community. Absolutely. And I think in the last couple of years I've seen you dive really deeply into incredibly intentional and meaningful community oriented storytelling, uplifting the voices of so many different indigenous peoples through a handful of different projects that you've done. And I know that a lot of that started or you started to learn a lot of that at Standing Rock. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's a really important thing to also notice that a lot of us that went there to support the opposition, not only to the Dakota Access Pipeline, but also, you know, an awakening of a lot of different indigenous peoples throughout the world to come together from all four directions to not only oppose this pipeline, but I think to to remember. I mean, that's really what it feels like to me when I think about like being on camp, you know, for seven months and living on a tent, being out there watching every day how people from like South America will show up with people from like New Zealand, with people from like the Sami nation in Europe, breaking bread and sharing songs and sharing knowledge with each other. To me, that was the important part of this whole thing of Standing Rock. And it gave us the blueprint of how to move forward, I think, too. The things that I do, especially like when it comes to movements and when it comes to things that are more meaningful than like selling a shoe, you know, like on a commercial. To me, those things are, they literally are the, like the, these intentions and seeds so that people in the future 
could see that we tried. Yeah, I mean, we might have failed in many things, but there is like a blueprint for how things could be, right? Like that's what our ancestors did. And they dreamed about us being here, you know, living probably with these technologies that they probably never really comprehended. Mm-hmm. Here we are like making music videos and making images, you know? So a lot of the work that I'm doing is not just for me and not just for us right now, but it's something that I'll never get to see like a lot of the benefits of sacrificing a lot in my life to go do this work. I do think a lot about how a lot of these stories and a lot of these images, videos, and like now commercials, they're literally like seeds of things that happened, things that could happen, like almost like envisioning. So like knowing that when I'm gone, when I make these things that somebody in like a hundred years from now is gonna look at the work from Sending Rock and remember, oh yeah, that's, that's what that title's. Why do you think it's important to be intentional with the language we use around photography? Words like taking photos, capturing images, photo shoot, obviously. I've learned a lot from you kind of around that conversation. Can you share a little bit about that? Um, you know, I think that when, when you're doing something, whether it is creating an image or making a song, language is, is vital in that process of bringing something into fruition because... When you, for example, you know, normalize the words like taking or, or shooting or capturing, right? If you look into the way that we've been telling the stories of indigenous peoples for the last 100 plus years, we start to realize that a lot of those things that were happening to indigenous peoples, like being shot at or being captured or being taken from their homes, it was being used also on the field of photography, mm-hmm. you know, also on the field of storytelling. And I think that maybe unconsciously, we were already telling people what we were going to go do. So now that, you know, even we have like major corporations like Apple using the word like shot on iPhone and then you have like shootings, you know, like mass shootings, you know, in high schools around the country, we don't really think about the fact that we're saying we're going to go shoot and that we're going to go, you know, forward. We're going to go take, right? It's not, you're not saying I'm going to go give. You're saying I'm going to go take from something. I'm going to go execute something. Hmm. So I think that the language in itself is really important because, if we reverse it and we reprogram it and say, well, I'm going to go make something with someone. I'm going to collaborate with someone. Like, I'm going to go listen. I'm going to go give something away. Then you're already telling people what you're going to do. And I think that that's really important, especially in our generations, these younger generations that are working with technology. Technology inherently, it's colonizing and inherently is extractive. We are already in that world and we don't have a protocol and we don't have like a foundation of how we're going to, be in those worlds, then we're like probably going to be extracted from more than we already are extracted from, you know? Mm -hmm. So when do you decided that being a musician was how you could contribute to the movements that you care about? And, And even furthermore, like, how do you even separate yourself from being like an indigenous artist and then just being an artist. I don't think mm-hmm. I ever asked you that, but. Yeah. I was introduced to music as a concept or I was first exposed to listening to or being surrounded by music as a form of ceremony. That was one of the ways that we just kept our culture 
stayed close to our culture in my family, in our household, in our community was through our songs. That's how we learned and, and held pieces of our language. And, and then when I turned like eight, I forgot my first hip hop record. And then I started being exposed to a whole different world and just learning and studying and sitting with some of the OGs in my community and really just absorbing the wealth of knowledge within hip hop culture, which is a, in a lot of ways, a very young culture that has manifested itself in the, in the last few decades, but built upon many, many generations of Black art, honestly, and, and storytelling and, and resistance. You know, it's, that's, I think, where it really comes from, is from uh, a space of resistance to Black communities in, in the Bronx, to violence and to lack of access to resources. And many of the, of the hardships that those communities were experiencing, that's where hip-hop was born from as this really beautiful, diverse expression of culture of from the dance to the streetwear to the emceeing to the DJing to the graffiti, the artwork that was painted on walls. So it's like that, I think, laid the foundation for so much of what we now experience in many Native communities and Mexican and Chicano communities, like the brilliance and, and the beauty of hip-hop culture, of expression of Black culture, just influencing and lifting up and empowering so many Black, Brown white, yellow faces, that to me is the foundation of my love for for this art form and bring my own story to it. I want my art to speak for itself. It does a disservice to us to be limited by the identity that we claim as that being kind of like the ceiling of reflect that in our art because it's who we are, but we don't necessarily need to have that be like a definitive factor of, of how we are seen or of how our art is consumed is because of our indigeneity. But at the end of the day, like we're telling stories that we want and we know that a lot of people are going to connect with. Especially with your work with music, it's almost like you're taking all that and you're putting it through like this personal lens, right? And almost joyful too. I feel like you're not just out here sitting and writing like lyrics about how catastrophic this whole mm. climate crisis is. You're out here also talking about like yo, we just all got to get up and dance together because hmm. like, we just got to have joy in these hard times. Yeah, I mean, I think my views and, and my politics and how I see the world is woven into the art for sure. But yeah, I mean, just the art lives beyond all that at the same time. You know, I think it's a more just raw reflection of who I am and, and it's a space where I get to say the things that I'm not able to say on interviews or <laughs> panel discussions or the UN. <laughs> the UN. Yeah. It's just the art is a vehicle for a lot of that energy and for a lot of that primary function for me for my music is is just like catharsis and healing for myself. And outwardly is is to uplift and empower our people I speak about or I'm grounded in a lot of the organizing work that I've done in the past and that I continue to do alongside the art. But it I think it stands on its own and I think at the end of the day, yeah, it's just it's deeper than just, you know, any any one movement or political belief. Hey. One of the projects that I've been the most excited to kind of roll out this year was this secondhand project, this Levi secondhand project that we kind of rolled out with Anawa Calmecac in, in this this beautiful school called Semillas. 
in LA, the assignment was to create something for Latinx Heritage Month. Yeah, there was a sustainability angle to it, but more so for us, it was looking at how community sustains us in the work we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just was curious what your thoughts were on how we held that campaign, how the work went into it, and why you know why it was important for us to kind of take up space through this platform you know, of Levi's to to tell a story that uplifted Indigenous community members. Yeah. So I remember when we were talking about it and you're like, what are we going to do for this Levi's thing? When we started talking about the school, it was perfect because we were like pushing the lens towards them instead of the lens and the whole story being like focused and centered on you as an individual. We were just like, well, let's go this way and let's just let's amplify it. Let's just a wide angle lens and have everybody in there. Why do we need to have a, you know, a headshot of this person? Um, headshot. That's funny that headshot. I didn't think about that. Head. I just call, I just call it portrait better. Um, there you go. <laughs> and bringing in our like people that we know into this relationship with this corporation. Mm-hmm. At the end of the night, you know, Levi's is going to move on into the next thing. But me and you have a relationship with the school and the people in the school and the people we were co-creating with. So it was really interesting too to see how we needed to protect that relationship and not jeopardize it just because a corporation wanted to do something differently. So it was so cool how we went from, all right, we're going to highlight Shutesca as a Latin Heritage Month. He's Latino to like, hey, let's look at how, how that whole umbrella erases these this indigenous communities and these black communities in, in Mexico and throughout the whole side of the border. And also the whole idea of like sustainability, right? Like this uh, work that you've been doing with them around secondhand and like, you know, reusing things and reusing denim. To me, it was really interesting that there were so many stories there within our own community, whether it's like the Mexican community or like communities that are workers, you know, that are that come here and then work. They use Levi's and people will like pass down Levi's from generation to generations too. Yeah. Sustainability doesn't have to be this bougie, like vintage Levi's. <laughs> what about for you? Like, how is that for you? Because this is the first time we've done this, mm-hmm. like heavily been involved in, in the creative. Usually they just give you creative and they're like, okay, Shuteska, we want you to do this. Go stand here. Go stand in here and like look cool, <laughs> look stoic. It was dope. My little brother was like, bro, this is like the dopest video I've seen all year. Like, mm-hmm. And that, that meant a lot coming from him. He's 18 and very Gen Z. But no, nah, it was cool. It was, it was cool to see how it was received and it was tight to just do something with the community that really centered. Yeah, the people and the youth and like uplifting the youth and it felt holistic the significance of shining a spotlight like that on to a community and an organization that is like really invested in the nourishment, education of indigenous youth. Like that is powerfully significant. Creating a a sustainable future is how we create these spaces for our youth. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about sustainability, even in context of the climate crisis too, it's so often thought of in a very kind of linear scientific sense that is solely based on our source of energy and fossil fuel extraction and transitioning to a renewable energy grid. Indigenous lifeways are inherently tied to the well-being of of the land, of the water, of the earth, of our climate. Looking at how a lot of the protests from Standing Rock to the Keystone XL pipeline fight to Line 3 to Bayou Bridge to a lot of the indigenous resistance that has happened on many of these projects has averted something like 25% of the U.S. and Canada's annual emissions. 
when I heard that from Red Nation podcast, they were kind of talking about that study that came out, indigenous people protecting and living and, and having sovereignty over how we exist on our own lands like that. That's land back, bro. That's land back. And that's essential for for the stability of our climate. And we have mm-hmm. hella, you know, indigenous voices and leaders and youth out at COP26 um, at this big conference of parties, you know, that I've been to in the past. And it's just this bureaucratic kind of shit show. And it was like really well exemplified by this this meme that's been going around of these freaking world leaders flipping a coin for good luck and combating and averting like the total catastrophe and this destruction of our society, mm-hmm. making these like hollow promises about what we might do to combat the climate crisis. When it's like, nah, bro, you just got to give land back to indigenous peoples, let frontline communities' voices be heard, keep fossil fuels in the ground, stop burning fossil fuels. Not that it's easy, but it's like, there's just so much bureaucracy and just like friction because of how everybody's just really loves that bread, that money. And you see the stories that come out of it, right? Mm. Either bureaucratic, supermarketed, sustainability, you know, like we're going to have green airplanes, green this, green that. Mm. But we haven't seen the stories of what does it look like when you let indigenous folks ride in the front seat and, and drive the car? The conversation around indigenous leadership to protect the climate is not even like, yo, like, let us have a chance and we'll protect the climate better than you're protecting the climate. It's like indigenous people are already doing it. Indigenous peoples make up 5% of the world's population, but defend 80% of the world's biodiversity. If you would be accomplices in that work, you know, to defend our lands, to defend our waterways, like, that's what we need governments to do. And, And there are so many roadblocks for us to be able to defend our own communities and our own land because of how exploited we are by these nation states, whether it's you know, the United States or Canada or Mexico even in, in the um, the work that has been done to strip us of our sovereignty. But I think there's a fundamental flaw in how we communicate and talk about the climate crisis. And so I think storytelling and art and music are really powerful ways to be able to reframe some of that and allow us to understand it as much more than just an environmental issue or an energy issue, but something that is really a human issue that is a community responsibility and to understand kind of the greater context of the implications of where we're headed and the reality, the truth of how dire and severe this crisis really is. Um, and I think storytelling can help recenter the right voices that need to be lifted up and heard kind of in these moments. And I'm firmly kind of a believer that frontline peoples, black, brown, and indigenous folks that have been and continue to be on the front lines are those that we need to be hearing and basing our action off of frontline communities and science is like what we need to be listening to and, and shaping our path forward. So why should you partner up with large platforms? They choose to come Mm. to you. Why is that important that you take those jobs, especially when it comes to representation? Yeah, I think um, what the opportunity really is when we are approached with different partnerships with communities or specifically with brands is this uh, question of like, how do we really bring the whole community with us when we do that kind of work? Because it's like, yeah, a lot of these brands want, you know, black, brown, indigenous faces so that they don't seem racist, that they are checking the boxes and following along with this trend of wokeness or, you know, social justice all of a sudden being something people want to be a part of. 
what's really dope about kind of some of the different projects that we've been able to work on is these brands are actually really down to, to open up the space so that it's not just about how do we bring X in as a talent to represent all these people, but how do we bring in the community to represent themselves? Because at the end of the day, we don't speak for anybody other than ourselves. And we're a representation of you know our ancestors, but also don't speak for all indigenous people or all people from our nation or our communities. How do we uplift as many people as we can through the process of creating art? Did we do the process in a good way? Because representation is really interesting in the politics around representation in in pop culture and in media or in politics even oftentimes make us think that seeing faces and people that look like us in places of power is is enough or seeing faces and places in the mainstream media is enough but in reality it's like how are those people holding that space how much does it actually affect and lift up the rest of our communities and the rest of our peoples how does it actually help change dynamics and structures of power more positive depictions of indigenous peoples in media and storytelling in Hollywood in books in stock images, you know, that you look up on Google or whatever that shifts kind of the consciousness of people subtly. Yeah. Like not seeing indigenous peoples as just like one thing, right? Like right now I keep seeing like every other attempt to amplify indigenous voices, they go towards the regalia, towards the feathers, towards this kind of image. Yeah. yeah. Like what about like Afro-indigenous women can we uplift that somehow mm-hmm. but brands and corporations don't really think of it that way they think it's like oh no like native americans not even indigenous peoples mm-hmm. how do we see ourselves beyond the construct and the limits of the colonizer that's really what it comes down to you know yeah facts because representation so oftentimes is like pitched to us or is demonstrated really as just like oh how do we ensure that there are more brown faces shaping ourselves into the most palatable form for white people or for the white gaze to consume or for white media to be able to pluck and pick and choose certain pieces of our culture or certain people that they feel represent, you know, our culture to bring them into the spaces. And it's like representation for who I think is is important. Like who is it really representing and what value is it contributing? I just can't wait to see the stuff you're going to like make in the next few years. What do you hope for for next projects, for next things that are coming up for us? Especially when it comes to like mentoring each other and like supporting each other more than mentoring, I think. I think we both have so much growth to do in our own art form, in our own creativity, in our own creative vision. I think my hope is that we hold space for each other to grow in those ways and then those visions and those ideas to cross paths in the most powerful ways possible. And yeah, that we just are able to keep doing this work of of lifting up other young creatives because like the space that you held for me, like, man, like I just imagine where other like indigenous youth would be in their journey if they had people like that riding for them. The big vision is is for us to build and create and to foster and nourish spaces that can amplify the mentorship that we've given to each other and that we've received from one another. That's part of the vision with with this creative agency that we've been working on together, Indigenize, is to create a space not just for our own ideas, but for the ideas of other Young people, young storytellers, you know, really holding space for indigenous youth to come and have their voice heard, amplified. Yeah. Uh, what about you, bro? What is the what's the vision for for the future of us? I mean, I think it's just building something that makes the process so enjoyable and so 
nourishing that we'll look back when we're old people and be like, oh man, we did all those cool things. But it wasn't even about the final thing. It was about the journey. How do we make people feel when we did our projects? Mm -hmm. You know, who do we inspire? Who inspired us? I mean, I'll be super honest. I, I know I have a son. He's five and a half. And when I think about who are the people in his community who he can look to as a reference for what an indigenous young man should be, you know, or could be. Your work means that there is this point of reference that my kiddos will one day be like, we know people that are doing good stuff in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that like looking back at this bank of memories as something that like, you know, can be healing. Mm -hmm. I just want to heal, bro. Like, I just want to be able to like get to be like, an adult and a grown man and a father that it's rooted, that it's stable and has so much to offer to like the next generations that come after me. Sure. Thank you, Shuteska, for joining this podcast and for giving us your time. Come on, bro. Yeah, no, very appreciative of every time we get to chat, converse, share, and dream. Dream together what we're, we're creating, what we're building. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Josue Rivas and Shutezkat for sharing your time with us. This episode is the first of six conversations we'll be sharing this month as a part of our mentorship issue, which is more than just a podcast season, by the way. You can read more about mentorship at grist.org fix, where we're exploring the power of mentorship in climate work and how mentorship must change to make the space more inclusive and accessible. That's at grist, G-R-I-S-T dot org slash fix. Temperature Check is a podcast from Fix, Grist's solutions lab, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. I'm Jess Stahl, Fix's editor for creative storytelling. Fix's Claire Thompson, Camille Williams, and Josh Kimmelman all contributed to this podcast, with additional contributions from Fix managing editor Jamie Berger and designer Mia Torres. This podcast is produced by Audrey No, with associate producer Dominique French and editing by Elise Hugh and Rachel Swaby. Sound engineering is by Mark Bush. If you'd like to support what we do, you can rate, review, and tell all your friends to follow Temperature Check. And go listen to all of our other conversations on mentorship right now in this podcast feed. See you there. <laughs>